Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Can I tell you guys how honored I am to be able to stand here? This is one of uh, the most significant places on the planet for me spiritually. Um, uh, some of the people that have impacted me the, the most uh, have uh, still work here. Uh, uh, your president is a, a dear friend of mine and in many ways a mentor. Um, men like Dr. Reed and uh, Dr. Motley is uh, Sam Williams and many others I would name my best friend now going on over two decades, Bruce Ashford. Uh, we were students together uh, and then um, one of us, failure to launch. Uh, Bruce stuck around, became a professor, married a student, uh, went on and went into ministry. So. Uh, I am a two-time graduate of this institution. I spent eight of the best, uh, best but slowest years of my life uh, here at the seminary. I was one of the original guinea pigs in the 2 plus 2 program before they'd uh, worked all the kinks out. Uh, they gave us one week of language training, dropped us off in Southeast Asia where the nearest person who spoke English lived 100 miles away from me. I could say, hi, my name is JD, where's your bathroom? My house is on fire, uh, and said, <laughs> bring this people group to Christ. So I think they've worked out a lot of that since then, but uh, it was a, one of the most foundational and vision-giving places um, uh, ever. I, you know, when I came here to Southeastern, uh, I remember uh, somebody, um, I think it was the president, saying uh, that Southeastern aspired to teach you to be four things, a preacher, pastor, scholar, and soul winner. Uh, other institutions um, will focus on one of those, but there is honestly, I can say now, no institution on the planet that excels at doing those four things together like Southeastern Seminary. And so I'm very proud to be able to call it home and to be able to, uh, uh, be able to have anchored my ministry here. Um, if you got your Bibles, if you would take them out uh, now and you would turn them on and uh, scroll down to Judges chapter 14, if you have them. Judges chapter 14. Earlier this summer at our church, the Summit Church, which is here in the Triangle, I studied and taught through the life of Samson as part of a series in Judges I was doing. And in the middle of my um, study through Samson, I told my wife that Samson reminded me a lot of myself, uh, but not for the reasons that you might assume. It is because Samson's greatest enemy was Samson. Samson's problem was not that he lacked the strength to deliver Israel, quite the opposite. Samson's problem was that he sabotaged everything that God wanted to do in his life. I had a friend at MIT who was putting the final edits on his senior thesis when he said he watched to his horror on his computer screen when uh, it was almost finished, just going through editing a few grammatical things when he saw every line of his senior thesis over 50 pages turned to gobbledygook just one line at a time. Uh, they've gotten a lot better these days at, at eliminating viruses like that from computers, but if you're old enough, you might remember when that kind of thing actually happened. Um, every single bit of his fantastic uh, thesis was just destroyed. Samson has a virus that sabotages him and is going to turn his strength into destruction. That's why I think I relate to Samson. How many times have you looked back on a chapter of your life and just asked yourself the question, why did I mess that up? Why did I have to say that? Why did I have to respond? Why did I have to get the last word? Why could I not control um, the temptations and the lust of my flesh? Why was I so impatient? 
this morning, I want to convince you that every morning when you wake up and you look in the mirror, you look at the greatest threat to the kingdom of God and what God wants to do in your life, you look at them in the mirror. Um, The weakness, the problem is not a weakness in the power that God has made available to his people in this generation. The weakness is in the character by which we sabotage what God is doing. I especially want to talk to you men this morning because Samson in many ways represents the temptation for every man of God. Uh, But girls, do not feel like his story leaves you out. Um, Old Testament scholars point out that Samson, the way the story is set up, was supposed to represent all of Israel. Uh, The author of Judges sets up Samson's life so that people who knew the history of Israel would see the parallel right from the beginning. Both Samson and Israel were brought into the world through a miraculous birth to an older couple. Uh, Abraham and Sarah, of course, were the the father and mother of the Israelite nation. Manoah and an unnamed woman, in their old age, give birth to Samson. In the case of both Samson and Israel, God took something weak and made it incredibly strong. Both were given a special law code that was supposed to separate them from the nations around them. Samson, of course, was given the Nazarite code, which consisted essentially of three rules. Um, Don't ever cut your hair, don't touch a dead body, and don't touch alcohol. Uh, Literally what it says is don't touch anything from the vine, which meant no Cabernet, no Coronas, no Stellas, no Miller Lite, not even two buck chucks from Trader Joe's. Even Welch's unfermented grape juice would have been off limits to Samson. Nothing from the vine. Um, Israel, of course, had much more than the Nazarite vow. They had the book of Leviticus that was to separate them from the nations around them. And finally, Samson was drawn to foreign women like Israel was drawn to foreign gods. So Samson's story is supposed to give you a picture of Israel's story, all the people of God's story. And so I say, if you listen this morning, it'll tell you your story too. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through the the story of his adult life, at least, and then show you how, like Samson, you and I become the greatest enemy to what God wants to do through us, and then what God's answer is to that. Judges chapter 14, the first story of Samson's adult life opens up with him informing his mom and dad that he wants to marry a hot Philistine girl that he's seen in town. Chapter 14, verse 3, but his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? This, of course, is not racial prejudice. It's just that they want him to marry someone in the faith. But Samson said to his father, get her for me because she pleases me well. If I had to boil down all of Samson's weaknesses into one statement, this would be it. Samson's primary driver in life is what pleases him. And he is not going to let anybody get in the way of what he wants, not his parents, not God, not anybody. This is kind of like a Disney movie in reverse. Samson rejects his parents' counsel and lets his heart decide, except that this story shows you where that kind of decision-making usually leads. Well, Samson throws a Mizpah to celebrate his engagement, which is Hebrew for beer keg party, um, which is, of course, a problem since Samson is not supposed to touch any alcohol. And then a few days before the party, he's traveling, and a lion attacks him. And the author records what might be my favorite line in Samson's story, Judges 14.6. And Samson, when the lion attacked him, tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Was that common in those days in Israel? I've never torn a young goat. It actually sounds kind of difficult to me, but evidently it's what you did back then for entertainment. What did you do for the fourth? Oh, you know, the usual. We played some cornhole. We set off some fireworks. We tore a few young goats. Um, It's just what you did. 
Um, Samson tears the lion that way. Then a few days later, as he's on his way to the Mizpah, he passes by that same spot and he sees the carcass of the lion that he killed, and he notices a beehive in the abdomen. One of the problems that befuddles Hebrew scholars is, how did the beehive get there? Was it in there before Samson killed it? Maybe that's why the lion was in such a bad mood. We were not told. But he sees the beehive in the abdomen, which sparks an idea for a riddle. So when he gets to the beer keg party, which is filled with Philistines, since the girl he's marrying is a Philistine, he says, I know you Philistines think you guys are so much smarter than me, so a bunch of uneducated Israelites. So since you're so smart, I got a riddle for you. And I'll tell you what, let's make it interesting. If you can guess my riddle within seven days, then I'll give each of you a suit of clothes. And if you can't guess my riddle, then each of you, all 30 of you, will give me a suit of clothes. And they're like, no problem, man, we're a lot smarter than you. What's the riddle? And Samson says, here it is. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet, which is, of course, a reference to the honey from the lion's abdomen. Well, they try for several days to figure it out, and they can't. So they go to Samson's bride-to-be, and they say, listen, you're one of us. If you don't get Samson to tell you his riddle, and you tell us, then we're going to kill you. So she goes to Samson and asks, and he won't tell her, so she pulls the oldest trick in the book, verse 17. She wept before him seven days that the feast lasted. Talk about a miserable bachelor party. And on the, on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, oh, Samson, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than the lion? And then, what is by far my favorite line in this whole story, Samson says only, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. (laughs) Men, there are two very obvious lessons for you in here. Number one, don't let anyone plow with your wife. Number two, don't call your future wife a heifer. Um, (laughs) You should write that down. Verse 19, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town. And took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. Here is a question that I have for you. Why would God fill Samson with his spirit to do something petty and vindictive that arose because he was at a party that he should not have been in the first place because he is marrying a Philistine and he's celebrating it with alcohol, which he is forbidden to touch? Why would God's spirit fill him there? The answer when you step back from the book of Judges is when you see that God had a much bigger purpose than how he was using Samson. You see, Israel, by this point in the book of Judges, had grown very comfortable in their captivity with the Philistines. The Philistines were smart. They were educated. It was a very comfortable existence. So God needed to stir up some trouble because they've gotten very at home. So enter a, 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 um, a, a hot-blooded, meathead uh, guy on roid rage, Samson. And so God is going to use Samson, even though Samson's heart is not right with him, and it communicates something that I think is so vitally important as you think about going into ministry. Do not ever assume that just because God uses you powerfully means that you are right with him. This is one of the oldest deceptions in the book and sometimes fatally, um, fatally deceptive. Jonathan Edwards talked about the mystery of how God's spirit could so powerfully work through people who showed no evidence at all of His work inside them. And there are many people who go through life thinking that the fact that God uses them powerfully means they have to be right with Him. They have to be pleased. He has to be pleased with them because how else could they grow the church like they have? How else could they preach such powerful sermons? But the work of God through them ends up destroying them, making them proud and complacent, as we'll see with Samson. In fact, for some of you, I say maybe the greatest mercy of God that He is extending to you right now is letting you struggle in ministry 
letting you fall flat on your face so that he can destroy the idols in your heart. Those he loves, he disciplines. It's those that he doesn't care about that he lets go on and get hardened in their pride. Verse, or chapter 15, after some days, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, you know. That's what you did for date night as you get together and tore some young goats. Uh, and he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. And the father said, well, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Hey, she's got a younger sister that's hotter than she is. <laughs> Who cares? Uh, verse 3, Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes. Another unanswered question, how did he do that? And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the standing grain in the olive orchards. Now, as far as practical jokes go, this one is awesome. He ties foxes together and lights their tails on fire and has them go burn, you know, Samson was here into the, into the cornfields. Well, the Philistines retaliate by killing this woman and her father. Verse 6, Samson said, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. Hip and thigh, that is a Hebrew way of saying that he opened up a can of whoop trash on them. Um, That's a a slang term. And when he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom, which was a small Israelite town. Well, the the, um, the, the Philistines come to Edom, and they say to the Israelites who live there, we've come now to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 of the men of Judah, Israelites, went to the cleft of the rock at Edom, and they said to Samson, don't you know the Philistines are rulers over us? What is this that you have done to us? See, they want peace. They want harmony with the Philistines. Samson said to them, just swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Verse 14, then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire and his bonds melted off of his hands. And he found the fresh jawbone of a donkey and with it, he struck a thousand men. He did the whole hip and thigh thing on him again, uh, which is pretty cool, of course, except that he is not supposed to be touching anything dead. And the jawbone of a donkey is certainly something that was dead. And Samson then sang, verse 16, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out, out of his hand now. I mean, honestly, just take a second. How cool is that? With the jawbone of the donkey still in his hand, he composes a song. And I know it doesn't rhyme in English, but they say it would have rhymed in Hebrew, and I think you got to read it more like, a, like an Eminem kind of rap. With the jawbone of an ass, I have piled them in a mass. With the jawbone of an ass, I had a blast. And then he drops the jawbone like he's dropping the mic, and he just backs off. That's just layers of awesome right there. Chapter 16. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Now, whoa, now he's not just with a Philistine girl, he's with a Philistine prostitute. And Gaza, by the way, is the Philistine capital. So in other words, his sin is getting even more brazen. Well, the Philistines find out, and verse 2, they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning. Then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all. And he put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Now, what spiritual lesson is there in there, in there for us? The answer is nothing. That is just an awesome story. He ripped the city gate and carried it to the top of a hill. When that happens, you just have to write it down. Uh, verse 4. 
After this, after the prostitute incident, he loved a woman whose name was Delilah. That's right. Now, in Hebrew, Delilah sounds like the phrase, the night. If you go back to the opening verses of this chapter, you'll see that the word night keeps recurring throughout the, the story. Night in Hebrew literature represents darkness. So in other words, Samson is now lying down in the night's bed. In other words, this is a literature, literary indicator. This is the end, verse 5. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Verse 6, so Delilah says to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound so that one might subdue you. Verse 7, Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have never been dried, then I shall become weak and like any other man. So he lets her bind him with these bowstrings. Verse 9, she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. He snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. It might as well have been wrapped in wet toilet paper. He just threw it off. Verse 10, then Delilah said to Samson, behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. So he says, okay, actually it's new ropes. That's what I didn't tell you. So she ties him up with new ropes. And then she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a weak thread. Same deal, same deal. They come back and they, he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head now and fasten it tight with the pen, then I'll become weak and be like any other man. All right, now, wait a minute. We're getting pretty close to the hair now, right? So he's getting closer to it. Well, again, she does it. She weaves his hair into a loom. And then she wakes him up and says, the Philistines are upon you. He wakes up with a star and he rips the entire loom. And he's swinging it around the room, tied to his head saying, where, where are they? Verse 15, and she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And she pressed him hard with her words day after day and she urged him, until his soul was vexed to death. Has not Samson been burned on this before? Why would he fall for this? Write this down. Guys are stupid. That's why. He doesn't have the strength to withstand her displeasure. Samson, like a lot of guys, want harmony in their homes, and that's good until they want it so badly that they begin to cave when they shouldn't. Verse 17, and he told her all of his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I'll become weak and be like any other man. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in her hands. She made him go to sleep on her knees. You see, by the way, how overconfident he's grown, grown right? He just told her his true secret, and then he falls asleep on her lap. No worries, because he's confident his strength can never leave him. God is about to wake him up. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Verse 20, and she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he didn't know, he didn't even know that the Lord had left him. Like Israel, he didn't even know he needed deliverance. He's just gotten so comfortable with the Philistines. Verse 21, the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. Actually, they say they probably would have first burned his eyes out with a heated metal prong and then just dug out with a spoon, whatever remained. They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground the mill at the prison. Samson here gives you a picture of the trajectory of sin. It starts fun. It's all strength and beer parties and practical jokes and prostitutes and Delilah. It just never ends that way. I remember hearing an old country Southern Baptist pastor preach when I was a teenager. I remember his outline, sin binds, sin blinds, and sin grinds. 
I'm usually not for cheesy Southern Baptist outlines, but when you can remember one 22 years later, um, that's pretty good. Verse 22, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Uh, What a fantastic verse. We'll come back to it at the very end. 23, now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. So at this big party, they bring out Samson like a circus act. And when the people saw him, they started to praise their God. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called him out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me fill those pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. And Samson called out to God and he said, Lord God, I know I've sinned. I know that I'm here because of my sin. Let me be avenged against the Philistines. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Then he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it and him as well. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. So what is it that we are supposed to learn from Samson's life? Well, if Samson is supposed to represent all the people of God, I would tell you it shows us three things that you ought to understand about your life and ministry. Here they are. The first one is by far the the longest. Number one, we are our own worst enemy. We are our own worst enemy. The problem was not that God had not given Samson the grace or power to deliver Israel. It's that he sabotaged it. Let me break down Samson's weakness into five components. Here they are. Number one, he is impulsive. He's driven by his lust. He's driven by his stomach. He's driven by his anger. You cannot be desire-controlled and spirit-led at the same time. Paul said you will either be controlled by the lust of the flesh or you will walk in the spirit. You cannot do both. In the 1970s, a group of psychologists at Stanford University did perform what is now kind of famously referred to as the marshmallow test. It's, one of the most, it's been repeated multiple times and the, and the results confirmed, but basically it went like this. They brought in a bunch of five-year-olds, one at a time, into a room. And in this room, they put a marshmallow on the table. And they said, you can have this marshmallow right now if you want, but we would counsel you to wait. Because if you wait for an unspecified amount of time, and we won't tell you how long, um, we'll come back and we'll give you two marshmallows. And so they would leave the room, just leave the five-year-old there with the marshmallow, and they'd watch him with a camera. Um, they then divided the group into two categories. Those who immediately, you know, bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, picked up the marshmallow, and popped it in their mouth, and ate it. Those were the marshmallow grabbers. Then there was the marshmallow waiters. These were the ones that waited until they, you know, they come back because they thought two marshmallows was better than one. Um, the, the psychologist said what was interesting is how the kids developed different coping mechanisms to deal with the temptation of the marshmallow. Some of them would walk around the table and just stare at the marshmallow. Some of them would pick the marshmallow up and throw it and bounce it against the wall. Some would lick the table beside the marshmallow <laughs> as if the marshmallow had transmogrified into the table. They said, but whatever they chose, it kept them from eating the marshmallow. And they said they divided them into these two groups and then tracked them for the next 20 years. And they said, we have never discovered one single factor that so shaped the trajectory of somebody's life by this one character quality as to whether or not they could wait and not give in to the urge of their impulse. These psychologists said that this one factor mattered more than any other on their health, their material prosperity, and their relational harmony. That one factor was, could they control their impulses? It was more significant than social class, wealth, their family, or even their IQ. Now that's a secular study, but so much more spiritually. Here is the question. You're smart. 
You get great grades. You're a fantastic orator. Can you say no to the lust of the flesh? If not, then there is an expiration date timestamp on your ministry. And it is only a matter of time before you become an example from a pulpit like this one. And you become a laughing stock and you become an object of scorn and blasphemy in the church. King Solomon, who would know, said this, Proverbs 25, 28, a person without self-control is like a city that is broken down without walls. In those days, walls kept out petty thieves. It kept out, it kept out the enemy. It kept out wild animals. He said, when you don't have self-control, it doesn't matter how awesome your buildings and how luscious your gardens and how rich your homes, you just have a wide open door that anybody can walk in and take whenever they want. There is an enemy who would love to set you up as the best graduate of this institution and put you in the largest church in the Southern Baptist Convention only so he could tear you down, and he'll do it if you cannot control your impulses. So, men, I would tell you this specifically, and I know there's applications for the girls too, but if you cannot bring your addiction to pornography under control, you should not let yourself graduate from this seminary, and you should not go into ministry, because it is just a matter of time. It is just a matter of time before the enemy uses it to destroy you, your family, and when you fall from that perch, it's going to destroy a whole lot more people than it is just you. Number two, compromising. He's compromising. Samson treated the commands of God casually. He didn't mind breaking them. And sure, he said to himself, well, what can this hurt? I mean, I, I cut my hair? I mean, what, what's that got to do with my strength? He even got away with breaking the, the, the law. I mean, he touched dead things all the time, and he drank beer, and nothing happened. What if the harm, here's the question, what if the harm was not in the action itself? What if the harm was in driving out the presence of God from your life? You see, we naturally tend to look at our actions and we say, well, what harm is there in this? I can compromise a little bit here in my academics. I can break this rule. I know that this is what I said I do, but I can break this rule. I can compromise a little bit with my integrity, with my entertainment habits, with my academics. What if you really can get away with it? What if the real problem, however, was that it removed God's blessing from your life? I realize that every single action I take, every statistic I exaggerate, every little white lie I tell, every wicked image I view, every penny I misappropriate, that there is a God who sees and is grieved even if nobody else does. And Samson's life screams to us that we should never take the presence and power of God for granted because it most certainly he can pull back his hand and leave us to destruction. Number three, he was unteachable. Nobody could persuade him. This one connects to number four, so I'll do these together for time's sake. He was a loner. Did you notice that nobody's a part of Samson's life? He's a one-man Wreck-It Ralph. Here's a lesson we see tragically played out again and again and again in national church leaders around the country. They get to a place where nobody can speak into their lives. They become uncorrectable. Again, Solomon, an isolated man, watch this, will always begin to serve himself. An isolated man will always begin to serve himself. Apart from community, community that can speak into your life, you will always start to make it about you. I think David Pallison was the one who said, things that grow in a secret garden always grow mutant. I will tell you, probably the greatest temptation I face as a pastor, the greatest one is to isolate myself. It is so much easier to lead from isolation. But I understand that it is deadly. Let me ask you, let me ask you, would those people that are closest to you right now, would they say that you are teachable? Is that one of the qualities that they would bring up about you? Who is there in your life that can speak into your life right now? How do you respond to criticism when people criticize you? What areas are off limits? What areas you like, don't talk about that? 
because that is precisely the place that the enemy is destroying you. At our church, we've tried to develop a culture, we say, of giving and receiving godly feedback, and it's difficult. I get it for every sermon that I prepare, and I want them to be just really honest with me about things they see and things they don't see. And sometimes when they're giving in, I'm just like, well, who are you? You never even graduated from seminary, you can critique my sermon. You know, you, you, you preach like three times at the rest home, don't, you know, come in here. And, but I'm just like, this is what it means to open yourself up and say, you speak into my life. Here's the last one, proud. Proud, Samson was proud. You see that in at least two ways. The first one is he never, he assumed he'd never lose his strength. And then secondly, he felt entitled to use his blessings for his own purposes. Let me ask you those one at a time. Do you take God's blessing of you for granted? That's revealed in how casually you treat sin. It's also revealed in how much you pray. Our church recently has been going through some decisions and one of our elders pointed out the other night, is like, you know, we're about to commit the sin of Joshua 11. Joshua 11 was after Israel had gotten all these successes. They had a little small battle and they didn't even check with God on it. Cause like, we can handle this. We just knocked out Jericho. We can take care of this. And it was precisely that thing that became a, a long-term plague for them for many, many years. Our past successes can not be a source of blessing to us. They become a source of curse when they teach us not to be desperately dependent on the power of God and his direction in every single thing. Do you realize how desperate and dependent you are on the power of God? Here's a second question. Whose glory have you leveraged your gifts for? There is nothing more inappropriate for us than to use our gifts to direct our attention toward ourselves. Now, I heard a guy describe it like this one time. He's like, you know, in a wedding, there is the greatest moment is when they open those back doors and there she stands, the bride, in all of her resplendent, resplendent glory. As a pastor, I get to see, you know, this is like I get the best seat in the house. So look at her and look at him. This little thing always happens. Every, I've never been in a wedding where this didn't happen. Where when the door opens, he looks at her, he locks his eyes at her, and every eye just goes back and forth between because they're watching him look at her, you know, for the wedding ceremony. All right now, say you got a best man who's standing right beside of her. And, you know, the best man's role traditionally is to just make sure the wedding goes off without a hitch. But say you're watching, and as she begins to make her way down this long aisle, you notice the best man kind of lean out around the groom and start making eyes at her you know, making whatever flirtatious symbols. He's, you know, licking his lips or winking. I don't know what it is. But, you know, you're watching this best man flirt with the bride. All right, what's the groom going to do if he sees that? He's going to turn around and punch this guy in the throat, right? Because this is about them, not about him inserting himself and stealing her attention. Here's the Bible calls those of us who are called to serve the church, we are called to be, John chapter 3, the best men in the wedding ceremony. Do you know how evil it is? when you and I think more about the attention the bride is giving to us than it is giving to the Lord Jesus. When we say, I'm going to use these gifts and I'm going to worry about more, my name more than I worry about, about your name, you say, well, I would never do that. Just ask yourself how much you get jealous about other people getting more attention than you. You might have heard me tell this story before, but when I was about eight years ago, I was praying for our city, the Triangle area, that God would send an awakening here like nothing that we've ever seen. It's the kind of thing you'd write about in history books for 200 years. And it was one of those few times where the Holy Spirit spoke to me in a a voice, not audibly, but so clear that it could have been audible. Holy Spirit said, okay, what if I say yes to this prayer? And what if I really do send an awakening to the triangle that is larger than anything anybody has ever seen? What if I don't use your church to do it? What if I bypass your church? And what if if Tony Marita's church, what if his church is the one that gets big? And they're the ones that are always talked about when people talk about the triangle. You still want me to do it? And y'all, I'd love to tell you, I, I knew the right answer. You know, I, I knew I was supposed to be a, oh, yes, Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. And um, that was the right answer. That wasn't the real answer. The real answer was I'm not okay with that. 
Because when I pray thy kingdom come, what I really mean is, I mean my kingdom come. Because I've taken these things and I want our church to prosper and to succeed. Are you jealous of those whom God has blessed and prospered more than you? That is a sure sign of the evil manifestation of pride and God will begin to resist your ministry. Let me show you how this resolves because I don't want to leave you with a, here's five things you should do better. Let me show you this. Um, I'll, I'll do this quickly. Number two, the world needed somebody greater than Samson. That's what his life teaches us. It teaches us that the strong are not strong enough. The story of Samson is the last one in the book of Judges. There's a lot of you know, junk that happens after this, but he's the last judge. And while we didn't go over it today, Samson's story is supposed to be like this climactic moment because it started out so promisingly. He has this grand, miraculous birth narrative. He's given these promises of incredible strength. We have such high expectations for him. Yo, when you're reading a book or you're watching a TV series and you come to the finale, don't you expect something awesome? There's nothing worse than reading a novel and coming to the last chapter and it let you down. Or watching a TV show for seven years and then the finale, you know, can you say lost? <laughs> you know, and you're like, they were all dead the whole time. I want my money back, you know? Um, it's just, it, you hate a bad finale. Imagine being an Israelite and reading this story. And you come to the end of Samson's life and you're like, that's it? That, that's it? You know there's got to be more to the story. It can't end that way. And then 1,100 years later, Jesus of Nazareth shows up. Like Samson, he's born miraculously. Like Samson, he's got incredible strength, but his is over demons and disease and death. Like Samson, he's betrayed by somebody who acted like a friend and handed him over to the Gentile oppressors. Like Samson, he'd be chained and tortured and put on public display to be mocked. Like Samson, he would die with his arms outstretched. And through that death, when it looked like he was defeated, he would actually defeat the enemy. But unlike Samson, Jesus was not put in chains for his sin. He was put in chains for mine and for yours. Samson was a strong man made weak through his own sin. Jesus was the mighty God who voluntarily became weak to save us from the chains of our sin. And that's really good news because if you really want to be honest about your life, we're probably all like Samson. We're all people who are driven by our lust. We're all people who compromise and we're proud and we live for ourselves. But Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for my pride and my compromise and my rebellion. And it is when I behold that and it is when I see that, that that's actually what changes me. When you see that he, the strong, was given for you and you let him live inside you, then he will infuse into you the fortitude of character that makes you strong where Samson was weak. It's when you see that he accepted you freely by his grace, even though your life is more characterized by Samson's mistakes than it is Jesus' successes, it's then that you are freed from the power of the impulses and from the insecurity that made you weak and made you captive to those impulses. Which leads me to the final thing. Samson's life shows us it's never too late to cry out to God. When Samson cries out to God, he is as low as one can possibly get. He's in the midst of Dagon's temple where he has been blinded and bound because of his sin. That's why verse 22 was so important. The hair of his head had begun to grow again. I love that. It didn't begin to grow in the, the, the play. It began to grow the moment that it was shaved off. God's mercies, like Samson's hair, grow new every morning. They persist even where sin has shorn them away. Some of you this summer may have seen that viral video that started, went around. It was a, a homeless man. Saratoga Springs, Florida, where an art gallery puts out a piano on the sidewalk. Do you remember seeing this? Put out a piano on the sidewalk, and this homeless man comes and sits down and starts to play this beautiful song. Turns out it's Come Sail Away by Sticks. 
Um, but it was just the most incredible music, and you just not expect it. It, uh, it looked like Matt Papa. In fact, I texted Matt Papa if you know who he is. Like, is that you? Um, but it was just a, a guy who literally lived under a bridge, and he played this incredible um, music. And, and uh, the YouTube uh, video got 15 million views. Um, gave him this chance to tell his story. He was an ex-Marine who went into depression, into depression when his wife committed suicide in 1998. And in response, he turned to alcohol and drugs. Social workers came, took his three-year-old son away. Well, with all the attention that he got, they started this GoFundMe uh, account. All these people watching this video, it, last time I looked, it had about $100,000 in it, which is going to be available when he gets out of rehab. Social workers came, they reunited him with his son for the first time in 15 years. His old college offered him a scholarship to finish his education. Now, I'll be honest, I don't know how this story's going to turn out. You never know how these stories turn out. But I do see in that an unbelievable symbol. Because that song, that musical ability had never really left him. It was always there playing in the background of his heart. And it's just when he sat down and he started to play it that it became the source of new life. What you see with Samson is that God's mercies are like that song that just plays in the background. It's like this melody of amazing grace that has kept growing even when your sin has shorn it away. I can't tell you where this homeless man's story ends, but I can tell you what can happen to you when you turn and embrace God's amazing grace. You see, I realize that there's some of you that as I'm talking about this, I'm going through those five things and you're like, guilty, 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 guilty. And I will tell you that God still has a purpose for you. He says he wants to use you to bring forth fruits, abundant fruit. He wants to use you as a blessing and not a curse. He has preordained good works that you should go and walk in them. And as many times as you have walked away from God, his mercies like a song kept playing every morning. And the moment you stand up and you embrace the amazing tune of God's amazing grace through your life, then God begins to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. He can take even the worst disasters. And he can begin to reweave them and um, make them into a harmony for good and blessing in others' lives. Why don't you bow your heads, if you would. And let me just ask you to consider. Are you impulsive? Are you proud? Are you compromising? Are you unteachable? A loner? Do you understand right now what God wants to use you for in people's lives? And maybe you just need to confess, I don't have it. God, help me to stand amazed at the one who was stricken for me so that I can overcome these weaknesses and not be a vessel of destruction the way that Samson was, but I can become a vehicle of blessing. Father, I pray. I pray as one whose life is more characterized by Samson type of weakness than it is the opposite. I pray, God, that you would save men and women in this room from hurting their families, hurting their churches, hurting, God, the cause of your name. Lord Jesus, we're, we are weak. Would you be strong in us? We pray in Christ's name. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost, dying world. 
Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.